Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. April 1976. In a small village in Equatorial Guinea, a representative from the governor's office entered the village's center and ordered everyone to gather around. Earlier that month, a military helicopter crashed on the outskirts of the village. When the flames were finally extinguished, all three people inside, including a government official, were dead. The investigation into the helicopter crash had led to the discovery of a plot among certain villagers to flee Equatorial Guinea. When word of the plot reached President for Life Francisco Macias Nguema, he considered it treason. Now, gathered together, this representative had a message for the villagers. By order of the head of state, this village doesn't exist anymore. No sooner had the announcement been made than members of the military set fire to the village. The citizens were rounded up and forced to relocate. Some were arrested and imprisoned. Before this, only political rivals and intellectuals had been targeted by Nguema's sadism. But now, some of Nguema's own people, the Fang, had their entire village wiped off the face of the earth. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. In this season, we're looking at three African dictators who came to power in the post-colonial era. Today, we'll continue our look at Francisco Macias Nguema, the brutal despot who ruled Equatorial Guinea from 1968 to 1979. Last week, we explored Nguema's rise to power and how he began a brutal reign of terror. This week, we'll delve further into the terror perpetrated during Nguema's regime as well as the coup that led to Nguema's downfall. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. For the first few years of his reign, Nguema focused most of his attention on slowly consolidating power. It all culminated in July 1973 
when he had the Constitution rewritten to solidify his place as president for life and gave himself total control over all branches of government. Nonetheless, Nguema was convinced that someone would eventually try to overthrow him. If a formerly passive man like himself was capable of using violence as a means to an end, so was anyone else. A piece of paper wouldn't ensure his hold on power. For the rest of the 1970s, Nguema's main goal was to suppress any inkling of a coup. One of his first moves? Outlawing education. In March 1975, Nguema banned all private education, declaring it subversive. The private schools in Equatorial Guinea were funded and run by Catholic missionaries who, after the ban, were forced to leave the country. The few public schools that remained open quickly fell into decay thanks to a lack of government funding. And it was all by design. The last thing Nguema wanted was for educated citizens to realize how oppressive and authoritarian the government had become. Or how badly he'd tanked the economy. When Nguema drove the Spanish expatriates out of the country in March 1969, he doomed his country to economic failure. The Spanish were a major source of employment, not just as plantation owners, but as technicians, teachers, administrators, and doctors. Once they fled, roughly 15,000 Equatorial Guineans lost their jobs as assistants, servants, and clerks. The entire private sector essentially collapsed. Tax revenue dwindled to practically nothing, which in turn decimated the country's infrastructure and civil services. By the time he abolished schools, Nguema had enacted a set of brutal economic policies to clean up the mess created. Policies that would oppress the majority of Equatorial Guinea. Nguema focused exclusively on Equatorial Guinea's three major exports, cocoa, coffee, and timber. For the rest of Nguema's reign, almost all business outside plantation work ceased. Nguema redistributed the former Spanish lands among the Fang and only the Fang, excluding the Bubi and other ethnic groups. And even among the Fang, he chose only incompetent sycophants to run the plantations, just as he had done with government positions. With many of the more educated citizens, like the Bubby, now unemployed, they were forced to return to the plantations as workers. Many of the Bubby were long removed from manual labor and had little experience tending crops. But the bigger fear among them was how they would be treated by their new Fang plantation overseers. Many secretly fled to neighboring countries like Gabon and Cameroon. In response, the plantation owners turned to migrant workers, particularly from Liberia and Nigeria. As expected, the working conditions were atrocious. Many of these foreign contract workers were savagely beaten, sexually assaulted, and even murdered. But unlike the Bubby, the Nigerians fought back. At some point in the early 1970s, many Nigerian workers went on strike due to a lack of pay. Why they weren't being paid is unclear, but it is very likely that this was due to insufficient funds in the government's coffers. Nguema wasn't too pleased by the challenge. He ordered 95 of the strikers to be executed. 
Conditions got so bad that in 1975, the Nigerian government repatriated its laborers, demanding that their citizens leave Equatorial Guinea. Between the lack of manpower and the poor management, the economy ground to a screeching halt. All three of the country's major exports, cocoa, coffee, and timber, saw dramatic decreases in both production and distribution. But Nguema had an idea, one that would not only solve the labor shortage, but also the problem of what to do with all the kids who were no longer in school. He would make those uneducated, able-bodied young people work in the fields. In March 1976, Nguema signed a presidential decree that established a compulsory labor system. This new law required anyone over the age of 15 to be sent to government plantations and mines working 12 hours a day. Can't organize a coup if you're too physically exhausted. Essentially, Nguema forced his people into slavery, something neither the Spanish nor the Portuguese were able to accomplish. One report estimates that 25,000 people were forced into this labor program in 1977. Another report claimed that 20% of the entire population found themselves on the fields or in the mines. These workers weren't paid, and their only compensation was rations of fish, rice, and palm oil. They were only given enough food for themselves. Their families were on their own. The effects of Nguema's ruthless economic policies reverberated throughout the country. With everyone out in the fields and mines, one European observer noted that the capital city of Malibu was so depopulated, it appeared to have been hit by war or the plague. Stores, schools, administrative buildings, even hospitals had completely shuttered. While the buildings still lined the streets, they were all but abandoned. It was said that in Malibu, during the final years of Nguema's rule, 95% of the citizens had no power. The only places with electricity were those that had private generators, including a couple of government buildings and the few foreign embassies that were still left in the country. But as Equatorial Guinea fell deeper and deeper into disrepair, Francisco Macias Nguema was living a lavish life in his presidential compound. Allegedly, the presidential palace in Bata cost $12 million, and Nguema slept on a $4,400 bed. But Nguema's plan to control his people hinged on more than just forced labor and eliminating education. Nguema relied on another classic tool from the dictator's handbook, a cult of personality, one that rivaled any dictator we've discussed so far and one that would strike fear into the minds of his people right up until Nguema's last breath. Coming up, we'll explore Francisco Macias Nguema's supernatural cult of personality and his widespread massacres. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. 
That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. Since the beginning, Francisco Macias Nguema had lorded over Equatorial Guinea with devastating brutality. Through forced labor and outlawing education, he was able to maintain a stranglehold over his citizens, especially the poor. And yet, he still expected his people to worship him. Like much about Nguema, the origins of his cult of personality are a mystery. The statues, altars, and images of the despot appeared gradually, but it began around 1972 when he first declared himself president for life. Not only did he proclaim that he would be subject to zero term limits, he also referred to himself as Grand Master of Education, Science, and Culture. This title would ultimately be one of 45 that Nguema gave to himself. One of the more famous ones, though, has to be Only Miracle of Equatorial Guinea. Though it might seem odd that a man who despised both religion and education would use these ideas to build a cult of personality, it actually makes total sense. As we mentioned last week, political scientist Samuel De Kahlo notes that Nguema had developed an inferiority complex stemming from his own lack of intelligence. Nguema even once declared that the greatest problem facing Africa wasn't colonialism, but education. Getting rid of the intelligentsia and the foreigners allowed him to tell the uneducated population that he was, in fact, the smartest person in the country. Who would ever question him? More importantly, with a country full of uneducated people, it was easier to manipulate them into believing absurd claims. For example, that Nguema had supernatural powers. While Spanish missionaries had converted the majority of the population to Catholicism, many of the indigenous people still clung to traditional beliefs. Nguema's own father was a Fang witch doctor. And now, Nguema wanted to take advantage of those beliefs to elevate himself into the realm of a deity. For the Fang, the two major spiritual practices are the Bieri and the Buiti. Bieri focuses on ancestral worship, with a heavy focus on relics, which were protected by intricately carved wooden figures. These relics, often crafted from bone fragments of the dead, were believed to have spiritual powers and were passed down to each generation. Buiti also involves ancestral worship, but it incorporates aspects of animism. The idea that all objects, animals, and plants have a spirit and that everything is connected. Nguema took the beliefs of Bieri and Buiti 
and manipulated them for his own personal gain. He collected skulls, which he claimed gave him magical powers, and he claimed to be able to control tigers. The tiger became an important symbol for the Nguema regime and the official symbol of his political party. El Tigre was one of the 45 titles Nguema gave himself. The grand irony is that Africa is home to no tigers at all. The tiger's natural habitat is roughly 5,000 miles away in Central and Southeast Asia. Why he chose this big cat when he could have easily chosen the lion is a mystery. And yet, people fell for it. Nguema turned to spiritual leaders, sorcerers, and witch doctors to spread the word of his supernatural powers throughout the country. He essentially turned his country's traditional religions into his own propaganda department. In the early 1970s, Nguema went one giant step further and essentially forced the Catholic Church to prop up his cult of personality. As political scientist Samuel de Kahlo writes, Nguema's occult powers were formally canonized in church sermons by forced references to him as the only miracle, and even then contention that there is no God other than Messias. He also demanded that priests, under the threat of imprisonment, proclaim that God created Equatorial Guinea thanks to Papa Messias. Without Messias, Equatorial Guinea would not exist. It wasn't long, of course, before church officials complained about the twisted and blasphemous additions to the ministry. So, by April 1975, Nguema decided to forbid any kind of religious gathering, including funerals and mass. Foreign priests were expelled from the country, and local priests were either arrested or executed. Empty churches were converted into warehouses or armories, and Equatorial Guinea was declared the first atheist state in Africa. But despite Nguema's efforts to dismantle organized religion and supplant it with his own, the majority of the people weren't buying what he was selling. Some did genuinely fear his supposed superpowers, especially those within the military. However, many viewed Nguema as nothing more than a madman. In his book, Psychoses of Power, De Calo quotes a Spanish journalist who describes Nguema as unbalanced, inconsistent, and unpredictable, with a pathologically psychic incongruity which provokes his outbursts of unusual violence, interrupted by periods of equilibrium and lucidity. Nguema's mental state has never officially been diagnosed, and while it may seem that the cult of personality was a power play, there is a possibility that Nguema really believed what he was saying. Nguema became notorious for consuming massive amounts of bang, a form of cannabis, as well as iboga, a powerful hallucinogen, and in smaller doses, an effective stimulant. Iboga is commonly used in Bwiti rituals. It often gives users the perception of a near-death experience. In religious ceremonies, it's believed to transport people to the spirit world and allow them to communicate with the dead. Unfortunately, study of iboga is limited, so we aren't sure exactly what the long-term effects are on the brain. How much Nguema actually consumed is entirely unknown, but it's possible that he took enough of it 
to permanently alter his mental state, because as his reign continued, he became increasingly paranoid and unpredictable. And even more bloodthirsty. He was not just targeting political rivals, but also members of his own cabinet. By the middle of the 1970s, roughly two-thirds of the National Assembly had been executed, and scores of men in Nguema's cabinet were either beaten to death or hacked to pieces by machetes. Next, Nguema began ordering arrests and executions seemingly on a whim. For example, he ordered the execution of his third wife's former lovers. He would also murder the husbands of any women he desired. In 1975, Nguema ordered the arrest of the vice president and several others and had them butchered for antisocial behavior. The charge was that a poster of Nguema had been mutilated. How exactly the vice president was connected to the poster was never determined. The vice president's wife was apparently guilty by association, too. In August of 1975, she was accused of trying to poison Nguema. The dictator ordered that five of her family members' houses be burned to the ground. But Nguema wasn't satisfied just yet. He announced that their entire village was involved in subversive activities and must be burned to the ground. 173 people were forced to relocate while the village of Malin was reduced to ash. Malin was only one of several villages burned to the ground on Nguema's orders. With a government security service of roughly 3,500 illiterate and undisciplined men, Nguema had free reign to do whatever he wanted. These soldiers terrorized anyone not associated with Nguema, the Bubi in particular. They were harassed, sexually assaulted, and murdered. Nguema's reign of terror forced thousands to flee for their lives. Roughly 100,000 to 125,000 people were said to have fled to Gabon, Cameroon, and Spain. One would think that the sudden influx of Equatorial Guineans fleeing from savage brutality would have caused alarm bells to ring throughout the international community. Shockingly, it didn't. Even after the human rights organizations like Amnesty International and the International Commission of Jurists investigated and reported on the atrocities, most of the world remained silent. The UN issued recommendations meant to curb Nguema's crimes, but more serious actions were not taken. Naturally, communist countries like the Soviet Union and North Korea weren't bothered by the human rights violations they maintained good relations with Equatorial Guinea. What might be more shocking, though, was that France ignored Nguema's crimes. They were the only Western country that kept an embassy in Malabo. It became obvious that if someone was going to bring Nguema down, it would have to be from within. As Nguema's wild paranoia started to directly affect his inner circle, it seemed like a breaking point must be on the horizon. And in the summer of 1979, one of Nguema's nephews finally decided it was time for a new leader. Coming up, the coup of 1979. Now back to the story. For nearly a decade, 
Francisco Macias Nguema ruled over Equatorial Guinea with a bloody iron fist. After obtaining ultimate power in 1973, he enacted forced labor laws, built an absurd cult of personality, and ordered the mass murders of entire villages. But as the 1970s drew to a close, Nguema's paranoia was reaching a breaking point. Fueled by his consumption of hallucinogens, which by now had grown into a daily habit, Nguema became more convinced with each passing day that people were trying to overthrow him. His paranoia wasn't entirely unjustified. No dictator is immune from coups or assassination attempts. Nguema had uncovered a few plots throughout his reign, but he was always able to stop them. One of the stranger attempts was in the early 1970s when British novelist Frederick Forsyth, famous for spy novels such as The Odessa Files and The Day of the Jackal, helped finance a coup against Nguema. Allegedly, Forsyth paid $185,000, worth over a million dollars today, to a group of mercenaries on the Spanish Canary Islands. However, at some point during the planning stages, word reached Spanish authorities, and all 13 mercenaries were arrested. They were 3,000 miles away from Equatorial Guinea. Around 1977, Nguema's fear of a legitimate coup became all-consuming. Rarely did he travel to the capital of Malabo, afraid that the Bubby population there would make an attempt on his life. Instead, he barricaded himself in his bunker in Mongomo. Nguema essentially locked himself up in the Soviet-style bunker, surrounded by searchlights, guard towers, and a barbed wire fence. Roughly 200 of Nguema's most trusted men guarded the fortress. While he was holed up, 200 miles from the capital, Nguema left the duties of running his country to his cabinet, which was mostly run by his family. One of his most trusted men was his nephew, Teodoro Obiang Nguema Mbasogo. During his time at Nguema's side, Teodoro Obiang held many positions, including the leader of the country's National Guard, he acquired a reputation for being one of the pillars of the regime of terror. But Obiang's loyalty began to waver as his uncle's paranoia grew. Once Nguema started arresting members of his inner circle, including family members, Obiang was understandably a little worried. Obiang was a lifelong military man, having been trained by the Spanish military during the colonial period. So, similar to Idi Amin, Obiang had gained a loyal following among key members of the military, especially those stationed on the all-important Fernando Pu Island. The tensions finally came to a head in June of 1979. Nguema had refused to pay members of the security service for the past several months. It's unclear if this was a blanket decision across the entire armed forces or a targeted attack at Obiang specifically. But the fact was, officers were getting fed up. So Obiang sent some of his officers, including his own brother, to Mongomo to negotiate. When they arrived and made their demands, the 55-year-old president for life was irate. He responded to their pleas by having all of the officers shot, including Obiang's brother. When word got back to Obiang, 
he was overcome with grief. He never imagined that his uncle, whom he had been so loyal to, would execute his brother. But Nguema clearly didn't care about familial bonds, not anymore. Fearing that his nephew was starting to become too powerful, Nguema ordered the navy to attack Fernando Pu to make sure Obiang's soldiers stayed in line. Unfortunately, he was too late. The bulk of the military already believed that Nguema had lost his mind. Most of the navy forces switched over to Obiang's side. Nguema was left with only a small cadre of loyal men, not nearly enough force to hold on to his power. On August 3, 1979, Obiang went to the capital and announced that his uncle, Francisco Macias Nguema, was no longer the leader of Equatorial Guinea. Instead, the Supreme Military Council, with Obiang as its future president, was now in control of the government. Obiang then ordered the military to advance on Magomo to arrest his uncle. Nguema and his small group of loyalists resisted for the next few days. But Nguema realized that if he stayed, he would be executed. So he fled into neighboring Gabon with a couple suitcases full of foreign money. Two weeks later, on August 18th, Nguema was captured in the forest and sent to Malibu to await trial. His reign as leader of Equatorial Guinea was officially over. The Supreme Military Council, made up of both Fang and Bubby people, decided that instead of exiling Nguema or throwing him in a psychiatric hospital, he should be allowed to stand trial. On September 24th, Nguema and 10 other lieutenants faced charges of genocide, embezzlement of public funds, mass murder, human rights violations, and treason. As the charges were read and the evidence was brought forward, Nguema and his men denied everything. Of course, it didn't convince anyone. Whenever a defendant denied a specific charge, the tribunal would turn to the audience and ask if there was a witness who had evidence against the accused. Almost invariably, someone did. In a twist that shocked almost everyone in the courtroom, Nguema's men all turned against him, blaming the dictator for everything. Nguema defended himself, insisting that the other men were acting of their own volition. As he put it, I was the head of state. I was not a prison governor or prison guard. This was not just a way to deflect blame onto the other accused, some of whom actually were prison guards. It was also a jab at his nephew Obiang, who had been head of Black Beach Prison, where some of the worst torture occurred. To Nguema, the trial was a ludicrous case of the pot calling the kettle black. But the defense fell on deaf ears. It was obvious that the outcome for Nguema and his men wasn't going to be good. At noon on September 29, 1979, exactly 11 years after Nguema's election to the presidency, the verdict was read. Francisco Macias Nguema was guilty on all charges. His sentence was death. Nguema wasn't alone. Six of his compatriots were also ordered to be executed. The others were sentenced to various terms in prison. Nguema and the others were taken to Black Beach Prison and stood against the wall to be shot by firing squad. 
However, the men pulling the trigger weren't Equatorial Guineans. Legend has it that local troops refused to kill Nguema for fear that he would return as a tiger and hunt them down in revenge. So Moroccan soldiers on loan during the coup carried out the execution. Francisco Macias Nguema, Equatorial Guinea's first independent leader, the man who was known by some as Africa's Caligula, was finally dead. For 11 years, Nguema had ruthlessly lorded over Equatorial Guinea. Like many post-colonial African countries, the political chaos allowed him to take advantage of a vulnerable country and exploit his own people. Because he shut the country off from the rest of the world, it's hard to count exactly how many people died under his reign. Some estimates are as high as 100,000. That equals about one-third of the small country's population. In addition to that, another 100,000 or more fled to neighboring countries. By the time Equatorial Guinea was free of Nguema, it was a ghost town. But with Nguema no longer in charge, there was hope that Obiang would right the wrongs his uncle had committed for over a decade. And at the outset, it appeared that he might. Almost immediately, Obiang committed himself to the United Nations and pledged to reform the country's human rights laws. He released political prisoners, reinstituted religion, specifically Catholicism, and stopped petty arrests. Most importantly, the mass murders ended. But the hope that life would suddenly improve under Obiang was just a dream. Though some restrictions were lifted, Obiang mostly followed in his uncle's footsteps and consolidated power. Instead of murder, he simply accomplished it through suspicious elections. As of this recording, Obiang is still, at the age of 77, the head of Equatorial Guinea, having won five consecutive elections with over 90% of the vote. Under his four decades of leadership, Equatorial Guinea has still seen political repressions, torture, and mass corruption throughout the government. Corruption in particular has become an even bigger problem under Obiang. Throughout the 1980s, Obiang struggled to repair the economy that his uncle had decimated. Equatorial Guinea was still producing cocoa, coffee, and timber, but not nearly as much as it had during the colonial days. But in the early 1990s, oil was discovered off the coast and Equatorial Guinea went from one of the poorest countries in Africa to one of the richest. Or at least, it should have. Most of the oil money made its way into Obiang's personal coffers. In 2006, Forbes estimated that Obiang was worth as much as 700 million U.S. dollars. He and his government had deposited that very sum at a branch of Riggs Bank, the same bank that laundered money for Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet. While Obiang and his government have insisted that the money in that account belongs to the public, records show that Obiang owns luxury houses all over the world and even several yachts. Meanwhile, the rest of the country continues to suffer. In 2011, Data reports revealed that less than 5% of the state's budget was spent on health and education. 
Such blatant neglect and corruption has led to two notable coup attempts, one in 2004, financed by Margaret Thatcher's son, and an alleged attempt in 2017. In the first instance, the mercenaries were arrested before even entering the country. Perhaps this will be the legacy of Equatorial Guinea. Corruption, human rights violations, and coup attempts. Sadly, this is no different from many post-colonial African countries. Even 40 years after his reign, the foundation of corruption that Francisco Macias Nguema laid still remains. Hopefully, when Obiang is no longer in charge, that brutal legacy will go with it. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll look into our final post-colonial African dictator, Jean Bedel Bokassa of the Central African Republic. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.